This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. If you are a regular listener to this show, I might owe you an an apology. Uh, We've been doing a lot of one-on-ones recently rather than panels, and many of them have been with blokes. Uh, uh, We'll get back to the panels very soon, and I guess we will rebalance the gender mix. But this week, I simply can't go past the opportunity to talk at length with a very special, distinguished journalist, media executive, and educator who also is a bloke. Welcome to the show, Steve Cole. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Peter. Uh, Steve Cole is the Dean of the Graduate School of uh, Journalism at Columbia University in New York. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's a former managing editor of The Washington Post, among many other things in journalism. Not to mention, uh, or just to mention, the author of uh, several books, mainly about national security and intelligence. I'm, I'm quite exhausted just saying it, Steve. How do you find all the time? I, I just love my work, actually. You're so, just a workaholic? Yeah, not, well, possibly, uh, but I, I don't feel uh, abused by all of the effort I put in. I enjoy it immensely. So. Mm. Well, I, I have to say, it's a, it's a wonderful body of work, and congratulations on that. Thank you. That's the fan bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're here to uh, perform... Yes, sing at, for my sing for my plane ticket. As sing for your plane ticket. You're going to be at the Sydney Opera House, uh, the Antidote Festival, uh, on a panel about press freedom, with the uh, equally wonderful Maria Ressa from the Philippines, uh, who's I think one of the world's most courageous journalists, and and our very own Peter Gresta, who, um, as we all know, has spent uh, 400 days in a Egyptian prison cell for his troubles of being a journalist with Al Jazeera. Um, I'll be there for sure, but. Can I just ask this? Is there a danger that everyone, uh, the panel, the audience, are, are going to be in sort of furious agreement? I suppose uh, w- journalists do like to talk about journalism with one another, and there is a little bit of that setup here. But I think um, what's interesting is not the debate about whether or not journalists should be 
imprisoned, on which I would hope you know most people in an open society would be in agreement about mm. that. But but why are things becoming so much more dangerous around the world, and what are the forces that are yeah. creating this jeopardy for what used to be a profession that didn't enjoy total immunity, uh, nor should it, but it should be accountable, but uh, wasn't subject to this kind of pressure and and how the forces of populism and uh, the kind of delegitimization of journalism has has moved from the emerging world now to you know the, to, the White House. to the White House. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to him in a, in a minute. <laughs> he does demand attention, doesn't I'm he? I'm afraid he does. I mean, it'd be amazing <laughs> if we could go the whole show without mentioning the the T word. But no, we will not be able to. Tell me, but just just on that point of I know I agree with you I mean this is a I think this is an inflection point in this whole debate and um, we just had a press freedom summit in Sydney uh, you know very important uh, subject we also have uh, interestingly I think and I'm interested in your take on this but uh, in this country at, at the very least we seem to have the attention of the policymakers. Uh, we have a couple of uh, inquiries happening into press freedom uh, following these raids in Australia is there do you feel like the where do you think that we are in the cycle you know are we is it, is it turning our way at all or is it the wrong way i i think in the us it's um inseparable from the departures from norms represented by the trump administration and at the same time you know the the problem of kind of creeping assertion of government power uh, over journalism uh, mm. predates Trump. You know, during the Obama administration, there was a record number of prosecutions of journalist sources uh, compared to the previous administrations going right back to Nixon. Mm. And uh, toward the end of the Obama administration, they kind of straightened themselves out a little bit and made some declarations that they were going to go back to um, uh, a more liberal approach to these things. But, you know, this has been going on before Trump. And I don't think it's going in the right direction because there are two things. You know, there's the black letter law. What is the government empowered to do? What do judges decide in particular cases? But then there's the politics. There's the environment of public opinion. What do you think you can get away with? Mm. And I think a lot of what's troubling now is really more in the second category, that politicians, uh, national leaders, populists feel that they can get away with things that their predecessors wouldn't have thought to mm. dare to do, even if it crossed their minds. Is that so? Where do we how do we fix that? Because uh, we, you and I, can sit around and all our peers and colleagues can talk around the importance of free press and for democracy and such like. But if it's not resonating with the politicians and or their voter base, how do we how do we get change? How do we stop it? Well, I think elect uh, enlightened leaders would be one uh, <laughs> strategy. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. It's a complicated picture in the U.S. I, you know, we sit on the Pulitzer board. Whoever has my job sits on that board. And so you see all the journalism that's coming forward from around the country. And, you know, the paradox is that in the U.S. there's kind of a renaissance of investigative reporting yeah. that really makes a difference in in red states, in Trump land. Uh, for example, you know, the whole Me Too movement in the United States wouldn't have happened without investigative reporting. The institutions, the prosecutors who always say, trust us, we got it, we don't need an investigative press, they they failed all of those uh, victim survivors of of these you know institutions individuals and there's a recognition across the country that investigative reporting was absolutely vital to bring some of these uh, serial predators to justice and in Louisiana which is as 
Trumpiest, 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 Trumpiest as you can get. Uh, there was a, uh, an investigation done by the advocate in Baton Rouge about a, a peculiar practice of allowing majority jury verdicts rather than unanimous jury right, verdicts right. in felony uh, murder cases. And they, they demonstrated how much injustice had arisen from this. And as a result, a Republican governor and a Republican legislature responded to this investigation and changed the law. I mean, it's a, okay. huge, it's a huge thing. So yeah. okay. there's, a still, there's still a recognition that, that uh, investigative journalism matters. You're on the um, so you've been brought here to, out here by the uh, Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas, and you're on the International Advisory. Uh, we had uh, the Institute's boss Mike Ryan on this show uh, recently, and I did ask him one slightly pointy question, which was whether Rupert Murdoch needed money from a philanthropist like Judith Nielsen. So, as you're probably aware, the the first round of grants went out to mainly mainstream uh, news organizations, not only, but mainly, uh, including to Rupert's uh, newspaper, The Australian. So, I mean, really, does Rupert need a, a leg up? Well, I, this is our first meeting, so I haven't really okay, uh, been briefed in. But, I, you know, I think I recognize the instinct to try to launch um, an institution like this in such a polarized climate with some sense that there is a, you know, that there is a, uh, a kind of a range of credible journalism that you need to be uh, including in your thinking about how to strengthen journalism. Whether you make this grant or that grant, that's not for an advisory board member to judge. But, but I think in the U.S. it's particularly difficult um, to find um, a way to defend journalism without stepping into some kind of hyperpartisan polarized uh, conversation and you know Rupert Murdoch's properties uh, like Fox News are part of the problem so uh, I don't I I wouldn't recommend grant making to Fox News for example as part of a strategy <laughs> or to yeah, or Breitbart uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but you have to recognize that you know there is for example there's a conservative press in the United States uh, that that is quite skeptical of Trump and that doesn't get the attention Ooh. in sort of media circles that it deserves and I you know I read it I find it actually quite valuable because it's a way of thinking about change in the Republican Party in the era of populism that's, that's, that's not because of its values are an anathema to them, right? Yeah, they, I mean, they're genuinely conservative. They're, conservative. they're, not, they're not populists. They're not populists. And they're also internationalist. They're yeah. not America first. They yeah. believe in trade, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, they're not just a transactional politician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, of the way, one of the ways we want, I suspect, to look at Trump is that he's good for journalism, which is kind of what you've just been saying, right? So we, we talk endlessly about the Trump bump, you know, increase the yeah. subs for the New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker, etc., uh, we, we, you know, I mean, I brought PolitiFact here in 2013, and I, fact checkers are doing an amazing job. So every time Trump talks uh, about fake news, he gets fact checked, and he, and it reaffirms the role of journalism. So that's the positive, right? Yeah. I mean, we're we're doing the job. Is it just a question of volume? It's just a question of not being able to keep up with him because he, it's remarkable the speed and the the use of Twitter and all that. I mean. Well, he's quite uh, quite skillful, really, at doing mm. what he does, which is to own the conversation, to disrupt uh, the institutions that are opposed to him, 
to counterattack against any criticism, whether it's um, you know journalism or or from another source. He's a counterpuncher uh, and an extraordinary media magnet. And you know the paradox with him and the and the press, of course, which everybody recognizes except perhaps himself, uh, though you know maybe he's more self aware than than he that seems. We, we seem. uh, yeah, <laughs> but is that he needs the media desperately? He lives for the media. He sure. you know he's he's a much more kind of uh, affirmative media consumer and and media player than prior presidents yep. who found it just you know a burden on their uh, on their work. Got out of the way. Yes, right. yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. yeah, he's inside the bubble. And you can see as we yeah. go into 2020, he's you know he's reverting to his natural instinct, which is to be available to everybody who wants to interview him all the time. So he's he's stopped locking out the major networks, especially on television. He just wants to be on television all the time. He's letting the major networks back in to interview him. And and so you know it's a uh, it's cynical it's damaging it is uh, it is it is creating I think long term damage to the fabric of the American democratic system but um, you know it's not all what it seems to be because he is himself a creature of the press as much as an opponent of the press. Mm. You wrote recently about the Mueller report in in the New Yorker, and I, I, there was two two great points I thought were just worthy of more discussion. Uh, that you, one point was that the reams of accurate reporting about Mueller's investigation and the allegations of Russian interference may have created an outsized expectation. That, you know, so I mean, I'm not sure what the antidote to that is, but nonetheless, I think that's an interesting point that the the journalism, in a way, created this sense: oh, he's going to be impeached or something, and obviously that hasn't happened. I mean, where, how does journalism talk about that without kind of basically shooting itself in the foot? Yeah, I mean, I think there was. I guess the distinction I I was trying to draw was between the professional reporting about what Mueller's team was actually doing, what were they investigating, what were they discovering, what could journalists independently uncover in parallel to the investigators' work to describe the facts about Russian involvement in the election and whether or not uh, the Trump campaign was complicit with a Russian uh, propaganda or. Um, you know, sort of active measures campaign. Yep. And so that that reporting was turned out to be almost entirely verified by the Mueller findings once they were published. But then you had something else going on, which was not reporting. It was talking. Mm. All of the mm. news networks with their panels, hyperpartisan panels, just talk, blah, talk, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And that's where the expectations built up. And, you know, you have uh, these news networks that are increasingly identified with you know political points of view and especially on in uh, on the networks that were identified with the opposition to Trump you know there was this this almost emotional deep spiritual need for this investigation to lead to the end of the Trump presidency which was entirely unrealistic throughout because even if Mueller had found impeachable offenses that he regarded as impeachable offenses described as such and referred them to the house they would never have been able to convict him in the Senate yeah, uh, uh, in until the Senate. 2020 the yeah. only way you're going to ever remove Trump realistically was by defeating him in an election and smart people on these networks should have understood that, should have tempered the chat, chat, chat about uh, impeachment with these facts, but they didn't. Why? Because engagement makes money. You know, that we're in an age yeah. where, you know, you're not looking for broad audiences, you're looking for deeply engaged audiences and where you can 
touch people where their political convictions lie, then that's a form of business strategy, frankly, to drive ratings, to drive subscriptions, and it's and it's uh, it's not good, I think, for for journalism. No, it's not good. And um, one of the foundation quotes of journalism uh, is attributed to uh, Charles Presswick, the Manchester Guardian editor, nineteenth century. To see the li- so to see life steady, the journalist's job is to see life steady and to see it whole. Yeah. Are, are we not doing that? I mean, it seems to me what you're talking about is a lot of us are writing privileging opinion over facts and not seeing the life steady or nor seeing it whole. We're losing our sense of proportion. I, I agree with that. And I think it's I'd, I'd see it as a function of business problems as much as anything else, mm. at least in the U.S., because in newspapers, um, the loss of advertising uh, to Google and Facebook, the broken advertising markets, even the digital advertising markets are just not functioning in a way that could sustain journalism. And so the alternative is subscription. You mentioned it before. Mm. In order to drive subscription, you really need readers who are engaged. Who, your base. Who, yeah, you need your base. Mm. And what they're finding uh, is that readers who are willing to pay for journalism want opinion. They want more and more opinion. And so if you p- pull up your app on your on your phone, if you're a subscriber to the New York Times mm. or the Washington Post, You'll find quite a lot of opinion headlines. They're often labeled as opinion, but they're they're right there ahead of the news headlines. Right. And now, how can you expect people to distinguish between opinion and fact-based reporting, especially when um, much of the reporting is itself uh, couched in analytical framings and so forth, which can be helpful, can be appropriate. But you know, the idea that we expect readers to understand the the bright line between fact-based reporting and opinion and and to justify ourselves as as you know scientific method driven indifferent mm, evidence uh, report, evidence-based reporters yeah it, it's it's a fantasy uh, no wonder they're confused so um, it's I, I hope that we will find um, a way around this corner so that uh, audiences so is, is, are willing to pay for news but what they really want is reporting. Yeah, because you are, if you ask audiences, of course, they will often say the, the alternative. They will say, oh, yeah, what facts? I want evidence. Yes. And, and, and as you say, even though really they're basically picking their facts, yes. what's happening. So what, we need a new business model or models. Uh, yeah. where, where do you see hope that reaffirms the role of reporting and evidence-based you know, factual reporting? Well, I think um, – Today, the, the view is that the only way forward is through subscription, um, mm. and there are some, uh, you know, subscription services that uh, do um, privilege fact-based reporting and a kind of um, uh, impartiality or fairness over uh, opinion, and they are uh, succeeding. I think where the problem lies in the U.S. is at the regional level and the local level. You know, the national media, there's diverse national media that Mm. are thriving in a business sense. They have large newsrooms. Uh, Some of them, I think, are drifting towards kind of partisan strategies, but they're still highly professional and impactful. But, you know, around the country, you know, in in Des Moines or Detroit or Nashville or Dallas, uh, the decline of local newspapers has not been reversed. And, And and subscription is the is the strategy now, but it's uh, it's nascent and it hasn't been proven out yet. Hmm. It really hurts the fabric of those communities it to is. lose uh, to yeah. lose locally based reporting. You know, and we're seeing a similar trend here, not at that 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 at that extent yet, but uh, you know, we generally lag two or three years behind the U.S., but we hmm. do see the same trend here. I mean, I think regional 
and local is where it's uh, where we have to spend a lot of attention. I yeah. don't have a, sim- a simple answer either. I yeah. wish I did. And it, it goes to this question of credibility too. I think because when you're living in Indianapolis and you're uh, reading. Uh, challenging stories about corruption or about abuse of power, but they're done by reporters and editors that send their kids to the same school, that go to church on Sunday, that you can see in the supermarket, that you know that that comes from the community. The evidence is social science evidence is that that journalism is more trusted. Mm-hmm. But if you have someone parachuting in from the New York Times, or your only take on the news is coming from the two coasts. Uh, you know, you're of course you're going to be alienated from that in some in some respect. So we need to put more journos in 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 the in region, the communities, in the communities that they're covering. Yes, mm. and then there are some sort of projects around that sort of idea. Yeah, there yeah. are some nonprofits, but you know, sometimes you feel like you're just throwing pebbles in the ocean. Yeah, nonprofit journalism. I mean, is that? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of it in the U.S. and more of it in the U.S. than there is here. Is that a cause for hope? It's, it's definitely it a scale become, problem again. It's a scale issue, but it's becoming significant now. It has crossed uh, the kind of uh, threshold from being a sort of seed uh, experiment to being a significant force in in American journalism. Uh, There are national outlets like ProPublica that are very impactful and very well-resourced at this point. Um, And a lot of these regional nonprofits that have started up have proved to be sustainable and influential. There's one in Texas, the Texas Tribune, that's very significant. Mm. And... And they've proven that they can make it work, too, over a period of years. Um, so I think that's going to be part of the landscape for an indefinite time, and I'm glad that it is. Uh, you know, there's no reason why, you know, uh, philanthropy in the United States is tax-advantaged in a way that it isn't in many places in the world. Mm. And so there's always a fair amount of philanthropy that's being directed at one thing or another. But, you know, why not journalism, a healthy public square, in addition to symphonies and opera companies and that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a debate we're sort of trying to have here. Um, I don't know to what extent you caught up with the ACCC report. We, we There was the com- competition watchdog here did a, re- a massive uh, study of uh, the influence of Google and Facebook, in essence, on the news media. It came up with some recommendations, um, one which goes to the heart, I think, of what a lot of journalists are concerned about, which is the, if you like, the money that's gone out of the industry and ended up with Google and Facebook because they're more efficient at advertising than, say, news media industry, let's face it. But um, And one of, one of them was essentially uh, that they, they've given the platforms, one of the recommendations was that the platforms now have nine months to work out with the news media industry how, quote-unquote, it treats the news media, media industry fairly. Uh, on, and if it doesn't, there's going to be a big stick and the, the Google and Facebook are going to get knocked over the head. What do you think of that idea? Well, I listened uh, on the radio uh, while I've been here to, um, I think, the leader of the ACCC Rod talking Sims, about yeah. this. Yeah, And he sounded a bit cautious about what the standard would be. And, and so it sort of sounded a little bit like um, maybe he was just trying to create some space for the companies to do the right thing. But in the, in the U.S., our experience is that the companies manage these problems like public relations problems and that they, they um, you know, they engage, they throw a little money at it uh, to try to buy goodwill, uh, but structural reform that would really change the equation between publishers and platforms has been elusive. And it's not really in their 
corporate interest to restructure in the ways that would really make a difference. And so I think it's unrealistic to expect that they will. Um, and the kind of window dressing that they've been doing, I, I, we tend to interpret it as just uh, image management uh, because they are under pressure. So and it's they, PR. And it's PR. And they're trying to stave well, – more than PR, they're trying to stave off regulation. Yeah. And uh, the only place where they really have been hit with regulation that hurts is in Europe. In and, Europe, yeah. And so as the European regime evolves, then you know perhaps there will be models that can be imported from that into the U.S. We're, we're not as privacy-focused as the Europeans are, but we are certainly interested in restructuring. And, and I think – now there's a bit of a movement on antitrust in the U.S. that had been absent uh, during the Obama years. And the First Amendment, though, is interesting. I spent quite a bit of time with Google uh, a few months ago. And, of course, at the heart of what they do, say, in terms of, say, YouTube and you know spreading uh, things that people will find distasteful, if not hateful, is this sort of argument that, well, you know, the First Amendment gives everyone the power to say what they like. Yeah, I mean that's one way to abdicate responsibility for being a publisher. I mean the problem is that you know they they want it both ways. Uh, they they want uh, to be a neutral platform where everyone can say what they want, and at the same time um, they don't want uh, any regulation. And so, um, do you think of them as publishers? I do. Yeah, I, do? I I think they are publishers. They don't believe that they are. They don't want to be publishers because mm. being a publisher would come with responsibilities that would require them to um, curate and edit uh, material on their platforms to an extent that they have been unwilling to do. But, but one of the arguments against not making them publishers, but making them something else, like a third category, is in this country and, and yours, uh, as a publisher, uh, you get certain rights. You get responsibilities, yes, but you also get certain rights. So rights are around defamation and such like and privacy and one thing or another. So I guess the argument is, do we really actually want to give Facebook and Google the same rights as journalism? No, it's a fair question. I mean, watch what you wish for. You don't want Facebook and Google deciding what's, uh, okay. you know, what, what constitutes acceptable speech. And already, as they've tried to address the very real problems of hate speech and incitement to violence and, and other pollution on their platforms, they... They're engineers, and so their solution is almost always another algorithm. And then the algorithm picks up things that it that it shouldn't, and and represses speech. And there's really no redress for right. for those who are hurt by that. But um, you know, as a First Amendment problem, Google and Facebook are peculiar because you know the First Amendment protects Americans from government repression of speech. It doesn't really speak to corporate control. And this is a kind of quasi-public entity. These, mm. these networks have become like a public square, yeah. but they're not a government. So, you know, asking them to cease and desist or asking them to take responsibility is just complicated compared to if the prosecutors were coming around saying, I'm sorry, you can't publish that article tomorrow. So is one answer to all that uh, some sort of form greater transparency around the algorithms? Yes, that would be a very good place to start. Absolutely. And they have... Um, None of these companies has been especially forthcoming, but Facebook has been particularly difficult around that. Mm. And it was one of the earlier, the ACCC put out a draft report in where it suggested a kind of algorithm council. Uh, so some sort of, you know, <laughs> bring your algorithm and, and everyone yeah. will have a poke around at it. That didn't actually make it to the final report because yeah. I, I think it's, 
I mean, I, I, the transparency of the algorithm would be a, obviously a great benefit to the news media industry. Yeah. But um, and the idea of being warned of when they were going to change the algorithm. I mean, that that has caused all sorts of problems, as you know. Yeah. But how practical is this? I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm not an expert I either. Mean, no, it's you know, it, I I worry that we're kind of. I think these are all the right ideas, but I worry that we're nibbling around the edges of a structural monopoly problem. You know, mm. the 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 publishers and news organizations have lost control of their distribution and they've lost it to a monopoly that isn't really aligned with the promotion of the interests of these publishers. And Although so they willingly gave that over. The, well, they did in desperation and confusion after the digital revolution. And of course, you know, the companies aren't responsible for the fact that there was a technological revolution. No. <laughs> That's, you know, no. So we sort of invite that in the way we right. organize our society. Yeah. But, we uh, should have invented Facebook. I mean, that's, that's yes. the thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's true. Yeah, um, that would have fixed it. We wouldn't be talking like this now. That's true. Anyway, we didn't. Let, let's talk about your day job, because you do run one of the most uh, pre prestigious journalism colleges in the world. Uh, how I'm assuming demand at Columbia is holding up pretty well. Is it? It's holding up. It's holding up just fine. I mean, we have a full employment economy that uh, uh, that we compete with, but we're doing just fine. I think um, the thing about students arriving, we're just a graduate school, so if you come here, you know, you're you're choosing this as a profession, uh, and. Um, the change that I've seen, this is, I'm starting my seventh year now, and the change that I've seen is really more about attitude, uh, which is, has benefited from the Trump effect. Mm. Um, you know, prior to 2016, uh, in this kind of new uh, digital journalism universe and social media universe, I found, uh, not most, but a significant number of young people coming to graduate school were kind of confused about what journalism was anymore and very sort of involved with themselves. Uh, sometimes you'd have a student with, say, a scholarship donor and the donor would ask, why did you come to Columbia? And they'd say, because I wanted to tell my story and right, I would right. just die a little bit inside yeah. and say, unless you swam here from Guyana, <laughs> I'm not interested in your story. We're interested in everyone else's <laughs> stories. And that's all gone. You know, Trump has cleaned all that up. Really? Uh, if, you know, now everyone's sitting up paying attention, they know what kind of a world they're in and they have questions. If, you know, if I'm a journalist of color and I'm supposed to go cover a white racist rally, how do I stay safe? Who do I interview? Okay, that's right. a good question. Let's Great talk question, about that. Yeah. You know, we can, we can, we, we have answers to that question. Uh, but it's a different environment and, and people are purposeful, I think, in a way that I find inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Uh, how many students do you take? Uh, about 170 in yeah, the main it's, program. Yeah. It's, it's small. Yeah. It's elite. Yes. Well, it's, you know, we, we have a network of alumni that numbers, I think, something like 12,000, and they basically are in every newsroom in the world. And yeah. if, you know, there's a, there's a big fire and a bunch of journalists gather outside of it waiting uh, to, to, to go on the air or to write a story, you know, you'll find there's five or six Columbia grads there from different classes. So yeah. it's, a, it's quite a powerful network and a uh, very important one. Do you ever thought about opening up a branch in this country? You know, we have partnerships with other universities, so maybe mm. after the podcast we can talk about it. <laughs> we go and have that's, a usually, yeah, that's usually the way we do things globally. We have a relationship with Sciences Po that's uh, very good. And, um, you know, that journalism education in the U.S. is a little bit different from the way it's typically organized around the world, even in uh, Europe, I don't know so much about Australia, but um, 
you know, and then there's the calendar and all of that. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're a global institution. A third of our students come from outside the United States. And uh, oh, you have many Australian yeah, students over yeah, the years, I know. Yeah. yeah, it strengthens our program to have those kind of partnerships. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we'll you know, let's get off air and uh, <laughs> go and have breakfast. <laughs> um, I think we could talk forever. Um, what's your advice to anyone considering studying journalism? Well, I think it's more it's valuable in today's world because... There isn't the mentoring and the stability in long careers that there used to be. And so journalism education was always a way to get launched and to learn how to um, uh, go out and do the work you really want to do. But now I think it's relatively more valuable because um, the kinds of internship programs and the 30-year careers at stable institutions, that just doesn't – that's not the landscape in media. It's not the landscape in a lot of industries. But um, to me, the main thing um, – that I tell the students who come to Columbia is, um, you know, you're never going to have an opportunity to work closely with so many uh, passionate, diverse, experienced journalists mm-hmm. uh, to develop your own methodologies. And if you, you know, one of the things that's so great about journalism, as you know, is that it's a profession. You can succeed from so many starting places if you're willing to put the work in, right? It's not like you need a surgeon's hands or a mathematician's brain or something. If you put the work in, if you don't mind talking to strangers and you're determined, you can get there. But it does take uh, some learning. And uh, so really, you know, it's like everything else. Just put the work in, uh, take advantage of the time, and and, uh, you'll find that you're – it is something that you can learn pretty quickly. Within a year or so, you can be pretty fully equipped as a as an entry-level journalist. Mm, uh, no, I agree. That's very wise words. Uh, Steve Cole, thank you so much for your time. Right. Dean of Columbia uh, Grad School of Journalism, New Yorker writer, and so much more. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great stay uh, in Australia. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thank you all for listening to The Fourth Estate. Uh, this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the community radio network or um, at your own time and at your own leisure on your podcast app of your choosing. Make sure you uh, subscribe to The Fourth Estate on, the, on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and all sorts of things in between. Uh, we'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter where our handle is Fourth Estate. AU. And thank you very much to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>